as U.S. veterans, of course, I feel that we should be allowed to, to be home in the country that, that we were willing to, to fight, fight for and, and kill for and die for. Uh, we deserve to be back home with our families. In a typical year, hundreds of thousands of people are deported from the U.S. for entering or staying in the country illegally, a project at UC Davis aims to document their stories. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. The digital storytelling project is called Humanizing Deportation, and Lizbeth de la Cruz is a member of one of the research teams collecting and preserving these stories. She's also a Ph.D. student at UC Davis, and she joins us now to discuss the project. Hi, Lizbeth. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's exciting. So first off, what is humanizing deportation? Yes, like in general terms, Humanizing Deportation is a digital storytelling project that documents stories of migrants who have faced deportation and then also those who are vulnerable to being displaced by um, deportation. And like you mentioned, I'm part of one of the groups. So we have multiple groups all over Mexico. Um, Specifically, we started with Tijuana, um, but it's composed of um, researchers from institutions, higher ed and grad students like myself. And so these are these are first person stories. Um, people record their own stories or do they go someplace to be recorded? How does it work? Yes. Yeah, so we support their um, documenting their stories. So, for example, like you mentioned, it's first person stories and we support them with recording their audios with like our phones or with um, recorders. And we go on in the field to do the research with them. So, for example, if we meet someone um, in Tijuana, we support them in creating not just their audio, but also the visual aspect of what their digital storytelling is. And for folks who are not familiar with um, the method of digital storytelling, it's basically like a do-it-yourself style method that allows for the participant or like the storyteller to use their voice to communicate a story uh, within like two to five minutes in length. Um, They could also do more than one part to their story and then add images or like small clips to make this um, like, short video of their whole life or like a specific woman in their life that they want to communicate. That's really great. So what's the general aim of the project? So the basic idea, honestly, I feel that it's to really educate viewers on what deportation is and who is vulnerable to it. Because I feel like um, this project grew out of that uncomfortness and having all of this mis- misconceptions, right, of who it gets deported. Um, I think that there's like a, a white perception that criminals are the ones who get deported. But once you listen to the stories in the archive, and right now we have more than 300, and it's still growing, like you realize that that's not the case. And it's usually folks who get criminalized, which is different to being a criminal. So it's like they get system impacted, and then they get displaced and deportation becomes their punishment. Right. And how did the project come to be? So basically, it started in 2016. Um, my advisor, Robert McKee Irwin from UC Davis, he started this project along with a colleague from Tijuana. And after that, my professor just started working on it and making sure that it grew in different locations in Mexico um, and also in the U.S. Uh, so it started with that idea of like trying to really center the voices coming from, you know, the migrants themselves and not just so much about statistics and Um, research from, you know, like third parties, but more in realizing what the human impact is and really like bringing that um, human face to what deportation is. And I think that's where the name came from, like humanizing deportation. And it rises more from the idea that 
we're focusing on the people and not so much on the circumstances that other, you know, folks might think that really has to do with what causes their deportation, but more about like how they process their deportation and how they make sense of it. Right. And who is doing the work? Is it is it mostly graduate students or undergrads involved? Yeah. So it's I feel like there's like three levels. So our undergrad students like at UC Davis, we do have volunteers. Um, so they support us greatly in getting the subtitles done, transcriptions, translations. So it's like a, a really nice setup, you know, and where grad students also participate and undergrads. And where undergrads get like a sense of what the research is like, but they don't really do the storytelling. There's some opportunities for some of them to actually support with the storytelling creation, like if they do an independent study with um, my advisor, Robert Irwin. But for grad students, I feel like for us as future you know, professors in the humanities, it allows us to also see how our research questions could be implemented with a method that it's very hands-on. So for grad students, like in my case, it has provided like the research questions for my dissertation um, and then also just really realizing what public scholarship is. And for the other part, um, with like the third group that I would say it's um, basically um, professors, like tenure professors from like Mexico and the U.S. Oh, that's really great. Now, and, and what exactly is the particular role that you play in humanizing deportation? So I started in 2016. So right the first year that it began in, I remember during the summer, it was my first year starting at Davis and I received a call for participants and I was really intrigued by the participatory aspect of it and how um, grad students can actually do this type of work. So that I was very unfamiliar with it. And I come from an, like, an immigrant family, uh, mixed status family specifically. And I realized that the idea of what deportation is or what our immigrant past is, it's something that becomes like a secret. And I was very intrigued to um, combine like my scholarship with what my family's history is. And I feel like the project in my personal life has helped me really understand what my parents went through when they came to the U.S. undocumented. Um, then also my dad, when he lost his status um, a couple years ago, I just kind of like understanding a little bit more about how you know, they become vulnerable to a system that if they're non-citizens, then they become more um, vulnerable to being displaced by deportation. So I started in 2016 and I've been in the project since then. So it's been since my, I guess, my first year in the program. So I started as a digital storytelling facilitator in Tijuana, and then I went to do fields work in Guadalajara and have been just supporting um, in any way possible and also in California. Wow, it's really amazing. I mean, you have like a, a really kind of deeply personal connection um, to this issue. It's not just kind of some sort of intellectual pursuit. I mean, you actually, you know, this this issue touches you very deeply. Exactly. And, and it's hard, you know, because I feel like just by itself, you know, if I take out like the personal layer to it, I'm just understanding what, um, you know, my family is Mexican-American. And I feel like, understanding that many of our like family members or like even my own students who are like DACA recipients or maybe didn't qualify for DACA. I feel like this issue is something that does target a certain type of community and I am part of that community. So through my scholarship, that's what I try to, you know, we always talk about what do you contribute to the field? So I think that's my contribution. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a general demographic of the people who are featured uh, in the project, uh, whether by age or gender mm -hmm. or where they're from? Yes. Yeah, so mainly you would find men, um, men older 
um, Mexican men you would find there, um, specifically childhood arrivals. So uh, that means migrants that came to the U.S. when they were minors, um, like children, like babies that grew up in the U.S., learned English, went to our schools, even probably served in the military. And that's the population you would find the most in the archive. And it's just very unfortunate, you know, when you consider like folks who feel like they have this American identity, but it's not like legally recognized. So then they have to battle what deportation brings on, right? So it's like being displaced back to a country you were born in, but that's not what you call home or recognize as home. And even, you know, for example, in the Mexican context, people right away notice you're not from there. Like your Spanish is not the Spanish from Mexico or you have like these pochismos, right? So we talk about this double identity and it's a struggle, you know, like you, I, I feel like, um, like as a Chicana, you struggle with your identity in the U.S., being born in the U.S. So I can't really imagine what it feels like to be, you know, sent back to a country that you might, you know, enjoy or like eventually, but it's not where you want to be. Right. I mean, uh, and a lot of these people, they don't have any connection to the country that they may have been born in. And then they were brought to the U.S. as infants or as very young children. There's just nothing there for them. Exactly. And when you think about it, a lot of the times when they migrate as minors, they migrate with their families. So their parents, like maybe siblings, they're all back in the U.S. So when they're sent back to Mexico, they might not have any family. And if they do, they might not want to go to like the interior of Mexico. So they stay like in the border towns. So, I mean, the links in Mexico are broken. And I think that makes their transition into assimilating a little bit harder and just difficult. And they talk about this, you know, in the archive. And I think it's really important to also understand what it means to return to a country that might not even legally recognize you either because you don't have IDs. And to even get an ID, it's a whole process. So it's just, um, it's a really inhumane crisis that's going on with child arrivals. All right. Well, let's take a minute right now to listen to a clip of one of the people who recorded their story. Um, this is from a U.S. Navy veteran who was deported. My name is Alex Murillo. I'm a U.S. Navy veteran. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I've been deported now almost five years. I work with a Unified U.S. Deported Veterans. We are trying to get back home. I have all my my family, my kids, uh, everybody's in the U.S. I've been in the U.S. my whole life. I, I was taken to the U.S. when I was maybe one year old. Started uh, my whole life there. All my thoughts and memories are that of uh, an American kid. I identify with uh, being American. It's it's not something that you can take away from me just by deporting me. When I was in the military, uh, I was sent to um, places like uh, Abu Dhabi, United Arab, Arab Emirates, Haifa, Israel, and the whole time I was always an American. And I was always uh, protected then by the flag, my unit, and I never stopped being faithful to America, and that, that's, again, something that you can't take away from us. As deported U.S. veterans, we feel that um, we should have been protected by the country that we were willing to, to fight and die for. Of course, uh, it, it is very painful to be deported after serving the country. So is Alex's story, you know, one that's uh, that kind of typifies uh, the stories that you've been collecting uh, with all the research teams in the U.S. here and, and in Mexico? Yes, I feel like his story specifically is very inclusive of what 
you know, not just the deported veteran experience, but as a general idea of what childhood arrivals face. And like he mentioned also the idea of that once you started listening to like the rest of his stories is that his kids are also dealing with what his deportation is. So for example, they had to like come back to Mexico as well with him. They lived in Mexicali with him for a while. And um, recently I just saw him a few weeks ago in Tijuana and the same thing, like his kids are with him. But then you you wonder about what that experience is for U.S. born you know citizens and having their father deported in Mexico and then having to do like this transborder experience, but not really getting the education in the U.S. and it's just breaking families. And I feel like that's something that it's also echoed throughout many of the digital storytelling stories. Right. Are there any other people or stories that really stand out in your mind that kind of describe the, you know, the breadth of the experience of people who are who are deported? Yeah. So one example that I feel like it's very clear and, and I feel like it's a great link or bridge with the DACA narrative in the U.S. is the case of Isaac Rivera. He's actually from Chula Vista, was born in Oaxaca, came into the U.S. at six years old and came with his entire family. So he accultured, learned the language. And I remember in his narrative, he mentions this idea of becoming like a sponge, like in school, like he just, you know, was easy, like to assimilate and just become one of the other kids from his class. And unfortunately, on a, on a Sunday on, on his way to church, um, they stopped, um, he was with a pastor from his church, and they go by a um, border checkpoint and that basically changed his entire life and I feel like in his narrative he really shows the idea of like racial profiling and just being persecuted by border patrol and to just for border patrol to meet quota for their month and they decided to detain him even if he didn't have a criminal background so this was before the DACA program was implemented in 2012 so we talk about right now even with the Biden administration the idea of who are we going to provide relief for? I feel like the administration needs to really consider, you know, like uh, child arrivals who fit the same criteria of the child arrivals we're trying to provide some relief for in the U.S. So kind of like opening that idea that even those who have been affected by deportation but had no criminal record should also be, you know, brought back to the U.S. and given that second chance that they deserve. Now, the the overwhelming majority of, of uh, people who share their stories in the project are, you know, law-abiding people. The only law they may have broken may have been, like, the immigration law. But there are some who have had some brushes with the law other than, you know, breaking the immigration law. Um, but, but your project doesn't really, you know, gloss over that. Yeah, so they are, you know, and I think that's really important. So in my for my research, I, I like to ask the hard questions, right? So what if you did have a criminal background, right? Like, what do we do then? But you were childhood arrival. So it's this, I have the same argument, like they deserve that second chance, because when you consider the stories of the community storytellers, when they talk about, well, you know, I made my mistakes, I like, for example, some of them did have like a hard time growing up in the U.S., and as someone who was born in the U.S. and, you know, with like brothers and just understanding how it is for a Latino or like Mexican-American, like male to be raised in like, you know, like in L.A., for example, like you understand that the circumstances are meant for this type of population to fail or to fall within the cracks of like the system. 
So when you think about that and you have child arrivals who also grow similarly to, you know, the the U.S. experience of like um, a citizen, but just, you know, once they hit 18, they realize that, well, I don't have the proper documents to have like a normal life or navigate um, the U.S. life anymore. So, I mean, what do you do to survive, right? Or when you think about the deported veterans, they come back from, you know, war or for serving um, the country, but they don't have the resources to to get like the mental health that they need or to really uh, incorporate themselves back to society. So then their PTSD triggers and, you know, unfortunately, they have to find a way to cope with it. And for example, like with the story we just heard with Alex Murillo, you know, marijuana became that source. So when you think about it, like marijuana is legal now in California and many other states. So why don't we also, you know, like if we're talking about reparations, why don't we open up those cases again and provide opportunities for for this type of population to also come back? How do you respond to people who argue that people should be deported if they're here illegally? Well, first, I would say, you know, I, I try to understand where people come from and, you know, just trying to understand the different point of views. But. When you think about, like, for example, childhood arrivals, right, considering that they came here as minors, it's really important to understand that in many cases, so we have Tania Mendoza in the archive, their families try to legalize her status, but then you have, for example, um, lawyer malpractice, so they take advantage of the families, and then, like, in her case, she grew up with the deportation order, and so, I mean if we don't have pathways for people to become documented, but then we need the labor, right? Because these are a lot of the arguments that people make about uh, documented labor in the U.S. from migrants. Is that idea like, well, we provided amnesty for a certain population. And these people, for example, like my parents also, you know, they became legal during um, the the latest um, amnesty. So they had kids back in Mexico. So they also want to bring back their families with them. But then, there was no way for their kids to become legalized. So they, I feel like the U.S. maybe unintentionally created this generation of illegalized childhood arrivals. Or even if you were a permanent resident, which is the case for the deported veterans, um, they were still able to lose their status because of the criminal acts that supposedly, you know, uh, we identify as in the U.S. So like marijuana possession and all these other things that come with their PTSD. So in in a sense, like all non-citizens just became very vulnerable to being criminalized and then deported. What's been the most challenging part of putting together and running this project? You know, I feel like it's just the emotional like labor. Um, it's not so much of the intellectual things. I feel like that comes, you know, on its own because the storytellers themselves create this knowledge that as scholars, we we help make sense of it and like make it academic. But I feel like the emotional labor is the one that we, we still need to work on, you know, and how to like really step away and not get too involved. But it's really hard to not, you know, feel sympathy or like the urge to do more because you see the um, the immediacy, right? Like how urgent this topic is and how even with the new administration, like these stories still get forgotten. Um, even if they're still like speaking their truth, I feel like the right people are not listening, or if they listen, they decide not to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So your audience for for this is is it is it policymakers? Is it uh, just the the general public? So I feel like we have 
I would say like three audiences, right? So the first one is the general public. Um, it would be including like the families of the folks who have been deported because in some cases, I, they tell their stories for their children. So for their children to understand why they're not back home with them uh, or to understand why they can't, you know, just see them for a period of 10 years or why they have to be exiled in Mexico for like five to 10 years um, serving their, we call it their castigo. Um, but then we also have the policymakers that if they decide to really take on these stories or like lawyers, for example, they could help make a case for the return of families or family reunification or returning the, the veterans back to the U.S. But then you also have the academic piece, which we need also, right, so to make sense of the stories, to create more consciousness throughout like the fields of immigration, deportation also. So I feel like we don't have one specific, but at the end of the day, considering that these are the stories that the storytellers themselves create, it's the audience that they intended to. So you could really like, once you listen to the archive, like most of the stories, they are speaking to someone specifically. And most of the times it's either their family members or someone in policy. Like those are like the biggest ones. And on the academic side, I mean, you're creating this incredible kind of trove of, you know, raw you know, interviews that that researchers in the future will be able to use when they're, you know, working on the history of immigration or other, you know, social issues. Exactly. Yes. And I feel like this is something that I really appreciate from the project because we started first with uh, the idea of deportation of Mexicans, right, from the U.S. But then with the migrant caravan that started just, you know, becoming like a big issue in Tijuana and just the idea of like the um, Remain in Mexico program. So we also started documenting stories um, from Central American migrants and Haitians, just, you know, anyone who really needed a platform to communicate the circumstances that they are currently facing. Because I feel that the academic approach, first of all, like um, migrants, right? Like just regular people, I feel like they see the value in having someone from the university listening to them. And then second, like the the work that we try to do is with like presentations and conferences or even like op-eds and just anything that we publish helps their case. You know, I feel like they feel seen and valued and that someone is really taking into consideration their stories. Now, I, I would imagine, yeah, that, that these people are probably so grateful that to have somebody want to listen to their story because oftentimes they're very disenfranchised and they they don't know where to turn to get help. Exactly. And I feel like that's the the best thing, you know, because I feel like with um my advisor, Robert Irwin, he the the way that he taught us like this method, it's very ethical. And I feel like I feel comfortable even just, you know, saying that I am from the project, because I know that the way that we are working with community and collaborating with them, it's the best way that we possibly can, you know, like, obviously, knowing that like there's limits, um, if folks decide, you know, that maybe telling their story is too much or that they need space. Also, like we we value that, too, because it's like their their story and they're the ones living with their experience. But, yeah, I feel like they really appreciate it. They love the public presentations we would do before, you know, COVID times. And I think it's just that visibility aspect, you know, like that someone remembers. What would you say has been the most rewarding uh part of this for you personally, you know, working on the on the humanizing deportation project? I feel like for me, it's the human connection. So um, 
even if I didn't work on the stories of many of the storytellers from like, for example, Tijuana, I became really close with them. So like with Robert Vivar, um, also Tania Mendoza, Isaac Rivera, and many other of the storytellers like Montserrat, um, Andy de Leon, I became really close with them. And for me, that was, I, I feel like I didn't imagine something like that to happen from the project. But it, I think it has imposed me to continue working with the project since we know we started in 2016. So I've stayed um, since then. And whenever I can get the chance to go to Tijuana, I go and I reconnect with them. So we we currently co collaborate on different projects. So it just didn't stop in humanizing deportation, but it has continued through other projects as well. Mm. Has anything surprised you as the project has progressed? You know, I think for me, and I was actually thinking about this like a few days ago. Um, so I actually got the opportunity to work with, um, his name is Ruben Bravo. Um, and he recently passed away like a few, um, like last year. But I think for me, he was like the person who allowed me to learn more about like policy and like the law. And I've always been interested in like law school, but I chose the PhD route. But I feel like with his like way of even like working on his case while he was in detention, and like now being released back to Tijuana and how he was able to build his own case allowed me to see that they know what they need to say in court. But it's like they didn't have that first chance, the first try, because they didn't have maybe like access to a good lawyer or their lawyer didn't know that if they took like a plea bargain, then they would get deported because of their immigration status. So little things like that for me just became like, like, wow, this is impressive. You know, like they're not victims, but they have resilience and they, if they had that second chance, they would redo it again. So before we wrap up, um, what does the future hold for humanizing deportation? You know, we are currently working, I believe it's on two books. So there's two different um, versions coming out pretty soon. I think, I believe the first one will be in Spanish and the second one in English. And it's just, you know, the same facilitators, so grad students, professors, writing about their experiences with the project and maybe creating more of a theor theoretical framework of what it is like to work on this project and the stories that we have. So I look forward to even reading everything because <laughs> it's so much. And and will you will the project continue to collect these digital stories and be putting them online or is it winding down? I mean, what's what's the prospect for the online part of it? You know, even right now with like COVID times, we're still working on stories. And I think that's very powerful because um, as many of us have experienced, even, you know, without the immigrant experience, um, COVID has really highlighted a lot of the inequalities. And for many of our storytellers, the same thing. And I feel like it's really important for also for them to have a platform like this that's super accessible and very public, that it would allow them to also highlight how even with like COVID, like losing their parents on the U.S. side and being in Mexico, what is that like? And how do you navigate that? Like, where do you get your strength? So it's still growing and, you know, migration is not going to stop because of the pandemic. And I feel like if, you know, people want to tell their stories through our platform, then that's, you know, it's always welcome. Well, this has been really great, Lizbeth. Thank you so much for coming on to The Backdrop. No, yeah, thank you. Lizbeth de la Cruz is a Ph.D. candidate at UC Davis. As part of her dissertation work, she inquires on the deportation and deportability of childhood arrivals to the U.S. with a focus on human rights and affect theory. 
She's also a member of one of the research teams collecting and preserving the stories of people who've been deported as part of the Humanizing Deportation Project at UC Davis. Find out more about the project. There's an English and a Spanish version on our website, ucdavis.edu slash the-backdrop-podcast. You can listen and subscribe to The Backdrop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. Thank you.